Okay, today is March the 30th, 2010. We have one more day of this month. Boy, this this year is already flying by, and I just pulled off the first month, it seemed like, just the other day. Yes, Tempest tempest Fugit. Time flies. Before I begin, I want to let you know that I have ordered at least a half a dozen books that were suggested to me. And here's one of them I just got in today. Passion and Purity, Learning to Bring Your Love Life Under Christ's Control. And these all are going to be in the library after I read them or someone else that I trust reads them to make sure that they're uh, all they're cracked up to be. And then you can uh, take them out and uh, read them and bring them back. Uh, another one that I had was, uh, I think the name of it, I got it yesterday, was uh, Daughters and Mothers. And uh, had to do with uh, raising uh, godly uh, young women, maidens, and so forth. Uh, so anyway, that's what these two are about. And I have some other ones that are coming. And I encourage you to check in the library. Uh, by the way, every time we have a Friday night at the movies here, I always put the um, DVD in the library. So if somebody misses it and says, oh, I wish I could have been there, well, they can check it out in the library. In fact, I'm thinking we might have a special section of just Friday night at the movies. Where, yes. Oh, that's okay. I don't know. But... Um, we're going to have uh, one section that probably will put a little tag there. It will say Friday night at the movies. And we will, um, you'll have access to it then. And <clears throat> so check the library out from time to time. Let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. And during that time, we can uh, acknowledge to God any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that not only our eternal destiny, but indeed every day of our life depends on who and what you are. We certainly don't have the strength to live this life in a way that is going to be abundant, the type of abundant life that you choose to give to us by our own power. We have to rely on your word and upon your power and your trustworthiness to bring into our lives all those things that we desire, that courage, that stability, and that capacity to love. So we pray that you will help us to concentrate on your word this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. <clears throat> I don't want anybody to open their Bibles yet. <laughs> okay? I want you to just sit and meditate for a minute or two, thinking about the first chapter that we've already gone over. Okay? 
does anything come to mind? Because we're about to start on chapter 2. Now just think about something that might be beneficial to you, something that um, we've covered. Now there was ten verses. And most of you were here for most of it or all of it. Try to think about something that might have been there. (laughs) Okay? Do I need to spur a few things that might (laughs) trigger? One word in there was chosen. Remember that one? That we were chosen? Okay, now open your Bibles. <laughs> Look at verse 4. Nor, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. His choice of you. What did we do? What did what did we do when we got to that point? We went into some about the doctrine of election. Y'all remember that? God chose you because you're so attractive. <laughs> no, why did God choose you? Based on His what? His what? Righteousness? Well, He's righteous, all right, but the problem we're not. Okay, Amanda said it. Foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is a subset of omniscience. Foreknowledge is knowing what is in the divine decrees. And the divine decrees separates what is reality from just potential. Y'all remember that? And so somebody will, at some point, they may level this, accusation or allegation against you saying, oh, well, are you alleging that God didn't know it beforehand? In other words, that there was something God didn't know at one point, and so then He knew it, and then He chose you. In other words, they're alleging that you really aren't Uh, don't understand what foreknowledge is, nor omniscience, nor really salvation, because God has always known everything. But foreknowledge is a technical subcategory of omniscience. And it has to do with only the things that are decreed in the divine decrees. And so... It's not that God had to learn anything that He didn't know before. He's always known it. But this is a subcategory of God's knowledge that applies to the divine decrees, which is reality. Why did God even have the divine decrees? Why why does He reveal the divine decrees to us? Do you know why? Some of you are going like this, and some of you are just going. <laughs> to demonstrate that He knows everything. 
I mean, what he decreed means that it is going to be reality because he knew it. There's no time with him. It doesn't matter what timing is. All of it would be in future as from the divine decrees, but he knew it all. And when he decrees something, it's his way of demonstrating to us that he's always known it. And all he did was take the potential, this huge mass of knowledge of everything that could have been. I don't know how to show that on a graph or percentage-wise, but the amount of things that could have been but aren't have to be a, a mountain. And what really is going to come to pass is this little old bitty hill right here, a little bump. So what he's doing in the divine decree is saying, okay, I know all this. In fact, you can ask me any question about anything, and I can tell you to the nth degree what could have happened. Who else can do that? Nobody. But I have taken and reconciled, or I have, I have put this that's really going to happen, all the reality I've put over here, and this is my foreknowledge. I foreknow what is going to be in the divine decrees, and I'm telling you this because I want you to know how great I am. I want you to worship me and trust me because I know everything and I always have known it. And that's an awesome thought, isn't it? What you have to be careful of is recognizing that the divine decrees are based on His knowledge, not on His sovereignty. He doesn't coerce anything in the divine decrees. None of the, nothing that is in the divine decrees is there because God coerces it or forces it to happen this way. Part of the divine decrees is that it was God's design and His plan to give both angelic creatures and human creatures free will. And that cannot be tread upon it, or it's not free, is it? Now, that opens Pandora's box, doesn't it? I mean, if God says, okay, I know everything, and I'm taking this one little subcategory over here of foreknowledge, and I'm going to, in this foreknowledge is my knowledge of reality, what's going to take place. If he programmed a bunch of robots and he knows how they're going to function because he programmed them that way, that'd still be pretty neat, uh, having billions of, of creatures and know how they're going to know everything about them because he programmed them that way. But that's not what happened. He did not program us. He gave us volition. That means <laughs> the door's wide open. How can anybody know what someone is going to do for 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, however long it is, and give them free will and know exactly what's going to happen. Who can do that? God can. And we ought to sit back and go, wow, isn't that something? That's why that's in there. That's why we have elect and predestined and, and called and pre foreordained and all these terms and so that we can look at God's omniscience and say, what a God. doesn't have anything to do with programming robots and coercing anything within it. Okay, that was one of the things that we looked at in uh, uh, First Thessalonians. We're looking at the first two, ten verses. See, we start in verse 2. I just want to do a quick little rerun here. What else did y'all come up with? 
we see, well, I, that would just had to do uh, with his choice. We said, see something about become imitators of us. Remember what the Greek word was for imitators? Y'all remember it? Remember it had to do with a mimic? Mimicking? Mimicking? But it says, you also became imitators of us and the Lord. What does it say then? Having received the Word. Having received the Word in much tribulation, eclipses with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now that verse would be very hard for an unbeliever to understand, wouldn't it? Eclipses. <laughs> That would make a good password. You know, if you if you were Greek and you at night someone was coming up and you had to say the password, if you're not a Greek, because you've got to nearly spit on someone to say it, flips it. Anyhow, adversity and joy does not seem to go together, does it? And an unbeliever has a hard time, if not an impossible time, trying to manage those two in the same sentence. But the reason that that uh, the Thessalonians became imitators or mimics of Paul and the Lord was because they, having received the Word, past tense, what they were really doing was mimicking Jesus Christ, because this is the mind of Christ. This is His Word. And that's what we want to do is train our own will, our own self, our own thoughts through the Word. We're being trained, that would actually be in the passive voice, to be imitators of Jesus Christ. But it takes what? The Word. The Word, the Word. Always the Word. And then we see, <clears throat> excuse me. Oh, I, I, one thing I left out in verse five, I think, is really important. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Does anybody have written in their margin there, common grace? <laughs> okay, good. common grace. When you give someone the gospel, it doesn't depend on you. All you have to do is give it accurately, and it's not hard to give an accurate gospel. It's very simple. And whether they accept it or reject it is not on your plate. It is on God's because it's God, the Holy Spirit, who makes it clear and perspicuous and lucid to an unbeliever who is spiritually dead. So it came in power, not in word only. Yes, it takes word. God depends on us to give the word out, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then we see in verse 8 that the Word has sounded out and has gone forth through all, all over. Uh, this is God's faithfulness in getting His Word out so people can make a decision whether they're going to be on board with regards to God and His Word or whether they're going to just ignore it. But they're without excuse because they did get the information. Look at verse 9. How you turned from God from idols to serve a living and true God. Remember anything about that? Remember I said the 
the actual location of this is the turning to God came first and then from idols. Remember, we're not to go to unbelievers or even uh, believers that are in reversionism or that are ignorant and make an issue about what they're doing or anything. What we do is point them to the Word. What does the Word say? That's what's important. Then they then they'll recognize that their history, their sins, and everything else really don't matter, do they? It's all about the Word. Because when they understand the Word, then they will, like in this case, turn from idols. They didn't go in there and bash them for being idol worshippers. They said, no, I've got something better. The God of the universe. He's not visible. He's not something that you can tame in a wood or metal or anything else. He's the living God. And when you tell people about what the living God has done for them and His power and the proof and the, all of the, not only the references, but the evidence, then they'll turn on their own. That's what we saw there. And then in verse 10, what was this the last verse? What was verse 10 about? Remember that? And to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Yeah, that's talking that's talk about Christ's return, isn't it? About the rapture. What would be, just on the surface of this, what would be a, a pretty obvious indication that this is talking about the rapture? Because look at the verse. Whom He raised from the dead, who, that is, who Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's linked with Jesus who was raised from the dead. By the way, Sunday's Easter. You might hear a little, a little more about Jesus rising from the dead. I would say that's pretty important. And what's next on the agenda for us? What's next on God's schedule? He's coming back for us. So it's talking about delivering us from the wrath. It's altogether plausible, feasible, logical. But this is a reference to Jesus Christ returning, which we call the rapture, and delivering us from the wrath. What wrath? Any wrath? Is this talking about the wrath of hell or the wrath of some, some nation? No, the context is pretty clear on God's agenda what's going to be happening next. Okay, I just thought I'd get the juices flowing a little bit there. Uh, you never know when I'm going to do this. I like to keep it that way. To make you think. We need to be thinkers. How far did we get to chapter down chapter 2 last time? Y'all remember? Verse 1 is on? Okay. <clears throat> Let's read it first. For you yourselves know, brethren... But our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mis mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid... Uh-oh. Excuse me, I've got a little interruption here. They're saying I can't get online. I'm not trying to get online. Okay. Uh, we had boldness in our God to speak to you in the, uh, to you the gospel of God amid much 
opposition. So, Paul starts out saying, you yourselves know. And this is emphatic. He's telling them something he's already told them. But the case is, people need to be told usually more than one time. It needs to be reinforced. Sometimes it has to be told over and over and over again before it really sticks and they get what the message is. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying like, you, you yourselves know this, brethren. You've heard me teach that. You've got notes on it. It's on your computer. It's on your iPod. You hear it on the radio. You've got access to it on your, on your computer. You know this. Maybe not quite to that extent. But you know yourselves, don't you? So it's in fact, of course, he calls them brethren. And the fact that Paul was able to call them brethren proves that his visit to Thessalonica was successful. Why was it successful? Because he did not come with word only, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can do the same thing. Your life can matter. But it will never matter if you try to live it on your own power or do it your way. You've got to do it God's way. And when you do it God's way, you have the power and the, and the proof that Paul had the power and that he was successful is because he called them brethren. When he first waltzed into Thessalonica, that was a pagan city. No church. Jews that were steeped in Judaism that were probably a harder nut to crack because they were so religious and the others were the, the Gentiles which were pagans. They were all idol worshippers. And when he left, he left the church and he could now write back to them and call them brethren. It was because of what God did. Paul was obedient. God produced the results. By the way, that's, that's, let me say that again. Paul was obedient, but God produced the results. You know, we're not responsible for results. We're responsible to be obedient. God produces the results when we are obedient. So you don't think that it has to be... Uh, that you're responsible for how anyone responds or reacts to the truth of God's Word. You're just responsible to give it to them straight and accurate and live it. By obedience. <clears throat> then we have the phrase that our coming to you was not in vain. And we have the uh, verb here, geno. That's the present active indicative. Why do you suppose this word is in the perfect tense, by the way? I say this is perfect tense, but I don't have it right on my... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I said uh, present. This should be, that should be an R. Vidal, you got that word on your computer? What is it? Is it? It is a perfect, right? See, I have a, a perfect would be an R at the beginning of that code. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, was not. Was. 
Yes, a verb. What tense? Perfect. Okay. All right, so change that. Uh, well, I don't know if y'all are taking notes. I'll change it right here. This is no big deal. It's just that I have a code for what these are, and that P is a present tense, and my code for a perfect is R. So there you have it. That's a perfect active indicative. And so I'm asking you, my question is, why do you suppose this word is in the perfect tense? It is a grammatical illustration of what doctrine don't say it yet. Thank you. Now I'm asking you again. Look at it. That our coming to you, that is Paul and his associates, came, they came to you and it was not in vain. And I'm telling you that's in the perfect tense. Which means it's referring to a completed action in the past that the results go on and on. And I'm asking you, why is it in the perfect tense? And it is a grammatical illustration of what doctrine? Are you thinking? Think hard. Are you all ready? Eternal security. Perfect tense. It was not in vain. It was not in vain because there were people there who heard the gospel, believed the gospel. When they believed, then it was in a point in time. It was a completed action. Nothing was added on to it. And the results go on and on. So their mission there was not in vain. Now, if they didn't have any converts, you could say, well, yeah, it was in vain. But it wasn't in vain. Perfect tense, meaning that it had eternal, everlasting repercussions And the results of that completed action goes on and on. Okay? That's neat, isn't it? Okay. Verse 2. But after we had already suffered, and this Greek word for suffered is probasco, P-R-O-B-A-S-C-H-O. Pasco means to suffer, and of course pro before it means to suffer beforehand. It's a participle. Present active, which means they kept on suffering. To suffer beforehand. He's talking about before they came into Thessalonica, they had already suffered. Pro Pasco. Acts 16, 16 through 24 gives an account of the suffering they endured in Philippi right before they came to Thessalonica. So let's go to Acts chapter 16. And we're going to see about this Pro Pasco. Pro-Pasco. We're going to start in verse 1. Acts 16, verse 1. Now, what are we going to look at? We're going to look up in the Bible... What this pro-pasco, this uh, suffering that took place beforehand was about. Verse 1 in Acts 16. And he came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, sort of a Jewish woman who, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him 
And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. What's hard for me when I read the Bible like this to you is not stopping and telling you the significance of some of the things that we're looking at right here. <clears throat> and This is, I know, somewhat of a dog trail, but I can't resist not at least addressing that. Remember that Titus was a Gentile and wasn't circumcised. And there was a big deal about whether he was going to be forced to be circumcised or not. And they stuck to their guns because the Jews were saying, okay, well, we'll allow the Gentiles to be saved. That was awful, awful, awful nice of them to do that. Uh, however, if, if they're going to really be saved, they're going to have to be circumcised. A Jewish rite ritual. And Paul essentially said, the hell they are. And there was a big to-do over it. How does that jive with what we're looking at here now? In verse 3, and Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So, the thing is, there's a time and a place for everything. There's a time to put up a fight, and there's a time to retreat and wait for another day. Paul was not wanting to make a big issue about circumcision here. He had other fish to fry. He, he was on a mission. He wanted to take this man. And he didn't want to do battle here over that issue, so he simply circumcised him and went on his way. So this is, this is a bit of wisdom, a bit of knowledge, a bit of discernment that we also need to keep in mind. That you don't have to fight every battle that comes along. I'm not saying that you acquiesce and you cave into legalism. I'm not saying that you in any way are going to water down or neutralize doctrine. But there's a time to make a stand and a time to just press on. Okay? The Holy Spirit will help give you that discernment. It's just like there's a time to speak and a time to lessen the demut. Shut them out. If there's ever any doubt, lessen the demut. The Holy Spirit will give you that <clears throat> that discernment a lot of times. But don't think that every time someone says something that's not doctrinal that you have to pipe out up and straighten them out. You'll find that you have less and less friends that way. It's not your job to correct every word that comes out of every person's mouth. Nor is it your job to correct every action that people do that is not doctrinal. So use, use discernment and use wisdom. This is what Paul's doing here. Now that was my little side trail. Now we'll get back on it. Verse 4. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. And they passed a Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Huh. How about that? It sounds like the Holy Spirit was leading Paul and giving him discernment 
where to speak and where not to speak, doesn't it? Do you think He can do the same for you? That's what I was just talking about. There is a time to speak. And you'll get discernment for that. <clears throat> and, when he, and when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by uh, Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding the, that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I'm going to refrain from going on another dog trail here, but don't come to me and say, You had a vision and such and such and such and such. That does not happen now. This is still in the pre-canon period of the church age and God did communicate with mankind in various ways. Sometimes He spoke right directly to them. Sometimes it was in a vision. Sometimes it was in a dream. Prophets and so forth. By the way, what's in Macedonia? What's the capital of Macedonia? Was Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. Oh, excuse me, of uh, yeah, Macedonia. Uh, verse 11. Therefore, putting out to the sea from Troas, they ran a straight, a straight course to uh, Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in the city for some days. Now we're going to start getting into the pro-pasco, the suffering that occurred beforehand. And on the Sabbath day, we, were, we went outside the gate to a riverside where they were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the woman who had assembled, to the women who had assembled. A certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. What would we call that? Yeah, common grace. Write it in your margin. Another verse right there of common grace. Now, does this, the Lord opened her heart? Did the Lord reach in and turn a negative to a positive? No, that would be violating the principle of freedom, of choice. It means that He made the gospel clear and lucid to an unbeliever. That's what we call common grace. Verse 15, When she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit for fortune telling. This was a demon-possessed woman. And it's unconscionable to think that her masters, 
the ones that she was answerable to, were making money off of her being used by demons. I guess a person could get lower than that, but it'd be hard. They were benefiting from her anguish and from her suffering. Verse 17, following after Paul. Oh, wait. Did I read verse 16? Okay, okay. She was following after Paul and us, and she kept crying out, saying, the men, uh, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. <laughs> this gets kind of confusing, doesn't it? You have a demon-possessed gal following Paul and his associates, giving them the truth. I have to admit, I don't, I'm not sure what I would do there. Do you shut her up? Do you let her give it? What do you do in that case? Well, verse 18, and she continued doing this for many days. So Paul put up with it for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out at that very moment. He could have done that any of those days. Now, I'm not going to speculate on why he waited many days, but evidently he probably thought, well, you know what? We don't need our Lord and the gospel to be associated with this demon-possessed woman. And he finally shut her down. I don't know if that was the case, but anyway, that's certainly a possibility. Verse 19, When her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. What is he doing here? He's playing the race card. He went before the Gentiles to say this, see? So he'd already have their sympathy in their ear. They are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. See, he was talking to Gentiles. They were Romans. He said, they're doing customs that we're not used to these things. They're not, not even lawful. Well, that's not exactly true because uh, the Jews were allowed to worship. It, it wasn't like it was against the law. But if they started really getting into it and causing a ruckus, then maybe they would, uh, the Romans might stop in and say, we need to tone this down. But that's not what this is about. These guys are doing this simply because it was cutting in on their profit from making money off the suffering of a poor slave girl that was demon-possessed. Now, this is really rich. These guys are, they're low. Verse 22, the crowd rose up together against them and the, and the chief magistrate tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, they went to the inner prison. That means they went down to the deepest, lowest, darkest, dampest part of the prison. Not only were they there and locked up, they put them in stocks on their feet. And what for? 
because they helped rid a poor slave girl of demon possession, and that's why they're there. Then verse 25, I love this first word. But. <laughs> Don't you love it? Sometimes what, what it really means is, but God. God was about to work. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisons, prisoners were listening to them. Can you get this picture? Huh? It was so dark you couldn't see. Can you, can you imagine what it must have smelled like? It wasn't the prisons that we have today. No light, no, no, no doubt damp, stinks, critters crawling all over the walls and you can't see them. You're sitting there in stock so you can't move. And you feel a creature crawling down your neck. And what are they doing? Singing. That's what the power of God can do. They were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Because it's a joy to suffer for the Most High. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all of the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Huh. How about that? I guess the stocks fell off also. Everything. The earthquake. <clears throat> that gets your attention, wouldn't it? And when the jailer had been roused out of the sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Whew. Now, it would be enough to wake up to an earthquake, wouldn't it? The reason the guy was going to kill himself because that would be the merciful thing to do because if the, uh, the prisoners escaped, and the authorities came and saw that he, they would make him responsible. But there was an earthquake. Yeah, right, we don't care. You're had. And they would, they would torture him. He knew it, so he was going to kill himself. And then, out of the dark, down, way down there deep, those guys you locked up that were in stocks says, don't do it. We were all here. And he called for the lights and rushed in. See, that's how you know it was dark. It was so dark, they had to get torches just to go down there and find their way down there to him. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, evidently, you know, they were down the low part, he brought them out somewhere, up probably in a higher level somewhere, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, this is a very important verse, isn't it? And, you know, I really don't even think, it could be that he overheard Paul and Silas witnessing to some people. Or it could be that he heard the hymns and the hymns gave the gospel. But I don't think he's talking about what do I need to be saved in order to go to heaven. I don't think that's what he's saying here. Now, I wouldn't be completely dogmatic about that, but I'm thinking he's saying, what do I need to do to save my skin? I'm had. The authorities are going to torture me. What do I need in order to live? Regardless of what he meant, 
Paul knew what he meant. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your household. Of course, the minute that the jailer believed in Christ didn't mean that his household automatically was saved. It means this same thing goes for your household too. They can be saved. And look at this, verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So they spoke the word of the Lord. In other words, they just didn't leave it there. The jailer probably said, what are you talking about? How is that going to save me? And Paul explained by giving him the gospel, telling him about Jesus Christ and what had happened. And the believer, we know, accepted that. Verse 33, And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So they all believed. He took them out of prison. I wish, you know, we don't have the details. What were the other prisoners doing? Did they have to lock them up while they went to the house to have supper? Or were they also so taken by the attitude of these two ministers of God that there's no way that they were going to leave? I don't know what happened. I mean, as far as the details of what had to take place. Verse 35. Now when the day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, Release these men. Now, the only thing I can take uh, that I can assume here is that the magistrates went to the prison. How would they even know that any of this other even took place? So that would presuppose that when Paul and Silas had the meal at the jailer's house and they all uh, were saved and so forth, then they went back to the jailhouse. Because that's where the magistrates were going and they're all going to be there. Now, reading between the lines, that's evidently what happened because uh, they go, the magistrates go. They probably didn't even know where the jailer lived. Saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now, therefore, come out and go in peace. Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans, underline that. Men who are Romans. They have thrown us into prison. And now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. Woo! Man! Paul being defiant of the government here? Romans 13. I'll have a lot to say about that later. And they came and appealed to them. Oh, wait. The third, verse 38. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrate, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Because if you beat a Roman, you could, you could be executed yourself. If you're a Roman citizen, that's one of the benefits is you don't get beaten. 
and you're not going to be crucified. Capital punishment was off with the head. That's what happened to Paul, remember? Y'all don't know that Paul lost his hand? So when they heard they were Romans, they were really upset because, you know, there's always someone higher. And that's when they heard that Paul was not going to secretly go out. See, these, these birds knew that they did wrong. And rather than acknowledging it and admitting it, they're going to be the typical politician. Let's hide it. Let's suppress it. And Paul said, no, not so. You beat us who were Romans. And you want to have us sneak out? If you want us out, you come down here and you release us. Well, they knew it then. Yeah, but the magistrates aren't the ones that beat them. See, the magistrates were the ones. Where are you, where are you looking at? What verse? Thank Paul and they kept the trunk coming out. These men are bond servants of most high God who are saying the way of salvation. Oh, you're talking about over here in verse 20. Uh, these men, uh, and they said they, they had brought them to chief magistrates, and they said these men are throwing out, sitting confusion, and are proclaiming because uh, because uh, customs which is not lawful for us to accept are observed being Romans. Well, see, he's making a point that they're Jews. But Paul was a Jew, and he was a Roman. Just because they were Jews didn't mean that that prohibited them from being uh, Romans. Now they might have uh, taken these guys, you know, just heard that what these guys were accusing. The guys that were accusing them didn't know that Paul was a Roman. He thought, well, they're Jews and not Romans. Was that true? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Thank. Paul was a Jew and a Roman. So that's not true. The case that he's trying to make is that they're Jews, they're foreigners, they're not Romans. They don't, you, they don't abide by our customs. And so the insinuation was that now go ahead and beat them, do anything you want to do, because he was asserting essentially that they being Jews were not Romans. But you, didn't, you could be a Jew, which Paul was, and be a Roman. It didn't matter what your nationality was. Some people would even buy a Roman citizenship. If you had enough money, you could buy it. Paul was born a Roman. And so when these magistrates at this point heard about it, they knew they were in heap big trouble because they could be executed. And Paul knew it. And they wanted to, to cover it up and excuse it. And he says, no, you come down here. You, if you want us to go. And in verse 38, And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrate, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. They didn't know it before then. This guy had insinuated that they were Jews and not Romans, but that's not true. Paul was a Roman. He was a Roman citizen. Yeah. Maybe he, he thought it probably when the magistrates were coming out and all. I mean, you know, when the crowd was getting him and they said, take him and beat him or whatever. 
it probably wasn't a, a, a raucous, uh, emotional outburst type thing, a mob mentality. And it could be that he figured they wouldn't listen to him. It could be that he was thinking that they wouldn't believe him. But the thing of it is, here's the other side of that coin. If you said you were a Roman citizen and you weren't, guess what happened? Execution. And if you beat someone who was a Roman citizen, uh, execution. They didn't beat around the bush. They didn't find you $20 or something like this. So they knew they were in big trouble. And that's when, that's when they came to their attention. They really found out that they had messed up big time. And they came and appealed to them. That is, the magistrates came and appealed to Paul and Timothy and Silas, and Silas rather, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appeared to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. <laughs> Don't you love that? Huh? Notice they weren't ordering them to do anything. Because all Paul had to do was find a centurion and says, you know what the latest news is? What? Look at my back. Uh-huh. I'm a Roman citizen. Oh, somebody's head would roll. So they're begging them to leave town. In verse 40 it says, And they went out of the prison and, in, uh, and entered the house of Lydia. Now, did they leave town? Don't sound like it, does it? Begging them to leave town. They probably said, Hey, could it? We'll leave when we're ready. These guys are just... <clears throat> and when they had saw the brethren, they encouraged them uh, and departed. So they departed when they were ready to leave. Because this was uh, really an act, it was a, crime, a crime what they did. I mean, just anybody from knowing what's right and wrong would know that's hardly wrong to do. And beat them, it, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and then cover it up. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> so back up here. But what, <coughs> after, <coughs> excuse me. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. <clears throat> so that was the probosco, the suffering beforehand, and been mistreated in Philippi. Been mistreated is the Greek word hubrizo, H-U-B-R-I-Z-O. It's a participle, <clears throat> present passive. That means they received mistreatment. They kept <coughs> getting mistreatment. And this word, hubridzro, means arrogant, insolent, wicked, insulting treatment. It's where we get our English word, hubris. Hubris means all of those things. As you know, Paul reminded them of these things because these believers were under attack by unbelievers who were spreading lies to undermine their confidence in Paul. So that's why Paul is making an issue. 
when he left the church, there's always the Judaizers that came in and said, you don't want to believe Paul. He gave you a bunch of lies. He wasn't even successful here. You can't depend upon him. He has the wrong motives. And on and on it goes. And he's saying, but even after they already suffered and been mistreated, as you knew, they knew the story because Paul had conveyed it to them. And guess what happened to them? Many of them fell into abuse also. But they were imitators of the Most High, imitators of Paul. They were depending upon the Lord's power to provide and protect them. And so they were, they were, they were just fine. Clock on the wall says 8-0-0. So we'll throw our anchor out right here. <clears throat> and maybe we'll live to fight another day. If the Lord's willing. What do you have on your mind, Michael? Sure is. Thank you. It's me missing the six sigma where? Yeah. Oh, you're talking about in the Greek. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I was looking in the English. Okay. You're right. See, I'm teaching these guys the Greek. <laughs> it's working, man. Vidal one time told me, he said, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but um, you said that was the Aristotle and Vigor or something else. I don't remember what it was. And I said, no, I want you to tell me that. I said, even if I get egg on my face, I need to have it right. I said, that's something when the, when the student is explaining to the, to the uh, teacher. He said, no, it just, it's showing that you're doing a good job. Thank you, Vidal. <laughs> okay, let's close. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you've given us this opportunity yet again to recognize what's important in our life and that this life does not depend upon our power doesn't depend upon what we like or dislike. What, everything that matters is in your word. We, we find out there how to execute your plan. We recognize there that you provide the power for us to do so. That we don't have to rely on our own power. And that we can always depend upon yours because you are faithful. You never leave us. You never forsake us. And you are always a help at all times. So we pray that you'll help us to remember that. Concentrate on your word, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.